and welcome back to another installment of The Conspiracy Skeptic. I'm your conspiracy skeptic, Carl Mamer. And, uh, yeah, kind of mostly sort of back. Um, you know, that as I sort of said in my last podcast where I kind of read a chapter from, from, uh, for my, 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 my future book, um, you know, the whole election got me down. But, uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm bouncing back, kids, you know. Yeah, I got a cat, so I got married. You know, a lot of, a lot of interesting things in my life, but, yep, on the upswing. But, uh, yeah, but I'm very, very pleased uh, to sort of uh, this uh, the conspiracy skeptic reborn the third time. Uh, 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 very special guest, uh, Jeb, Jeb, Jeb Card. Um, Jeb is, uh, um, he's, you, you'll probably recognize that name. He's frequently on uh, as a co-host on on a podcast called Archaeological Fantasies. And let me turn you over to Jeb. Jeb, say yes, hi. it is Archaeological Fantasies. Hello, and congratulations on the cat, and I guess also the marriage. I suppose, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if you you know if that has to happen. But no, awesome. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, no, I uh, I am one of the co-hosts. Uh, uh, with Sarah and Ken, and Sarah is kind of like the core of it, but Ken and I on the Archaeological Fantasies podcast. We took a little bit of a hiatus, yes, yes. Uh, but we are recording some new episodes. We've had a few out recently, and we're recording some next week, and you'll see that in the new iTunes feed. And uh, I've also shown up on Monster Talk and on um, uh, Sharon Hill's 15 Credibility Street, Blake Smith's Monster Talk, and some other bits, And because uh, I love talking about... Um, I have a term. I can't remember if you uh, if you have the profanity. Uh, no, you're free, you're free to swear. You're free to swear. So weird shitology um, that about all of these weird and wonderful, and sometimes not wonderful, to be honest, uh, things. Since I you had just been mentioning the election and how uh, I think very much conspiracy culture and politics in my country, I am in the United States. Uh, very much have merged, though not just there, and this is not exactly a new phenomenon. It just seems a lot more people seem to be paying attention to it now. Right, yeah, yeah. And I, I guess we should mention, right, if you know, you are a fan of the uh, archaeological fantasies, or archie fantasies, as the cool kids say, um, uh, podcast, right, you're, you're on a whole new um, uh, sort of feed, right? So you should... Yeah, there's a, there's an iTunes feed. If you were on the old one, go get, go just basically check it out. And uh, Sarah's website is archiefantasies.com, and you can just find more out. And there is a there is a bit for the podcast there. So just just go check that out. Yeah. And, and do you have all the old podcasts in the feed, or is it is it kind of net new? Sarah is working on that. Oh, Sarah okay. is working on all that. Right. Yeah, uh, I, I do think some of them are there. Uh, there are just some some things that need to be done, like okay. some technical Great. stuff. Yeah, because yeah. I think I don't know. Might have been. You know, it feels like a year ago, but you, you know what happens when you, you you get more of an advanced age. It's just like what seems like six months ago. It's like, oh, that was eight years ago. But um, oh yeah, well, yeah. There's been a lot of that. It seems like in the last, oh, I don't know, um, year and a half. Uh, every day seems like a week, and every week seems like a millennium. And I'm an archaeologist, and you should take my my word on that. Exactly. Yeah. You know. You know. Deep time. But um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, I discovered your podcast. I, I think um, someone was mentioning something about oh. Oh, this this podcast they did archaeology um, the of uh, the uh, the Roswell site and then I'm like oh that sounds interesting and I and then I just find this podcast with like I don't know how many I had by then but it was like it that was, was like, I think episode 34 I was not a, I, I don't know how I know that actually but I was not a co-host yet but I had been like a he's been on a couple of times yeah yeah exactly yeah you you kind of started off as like just the uh, like an interesting guest and, and yeah they, the, the guest that would not shut up exactly and then they moved 
moved you on kind of more of a more uh, regular co-hosting job. But but uh, but it was it was like like kind of like where is this po- where how come I never knew about this podcast? And I always liken it to like you know like you know you've been living in a house for like twenty years and then you discover a room in your house that's just you've never known was there before. Oh, it, it's an amazing feeling because I mean one of the things I say to my students. So I I teach uh, at Miami University in Ohio and we have a. Uh, and an artifact collection used to be part of a museum <clears throat> that we now teach with, and it's about 10,000 pieces. And I tell my students every time I go down into our storerooms, I see something I've never really seen before, or if I've seen it, I've not seen it. But but uh, at episode 34, I think Sarah and Ken had been on for about a year, but really they were groundbreakers. There were some other archaeology podcasts. There was there was one or two others, but. Um, and one that did have a lot of guests. I, I, I don't think it's running now. I'd have to check. Um, and there were some other sort of just like, we read the news. But, but Sarah and Ken had really pioneered with a serious, solid concept, which I think a lot of people maybe wouldn't have necessarily taken seriously of, and there were other podcasts. There were a number of other archaeology podcasts, but theirs, theirs sort of began to break out. And, um, uh, because it was about, Again, weird shitology. It was about like strange things, which where that goes to is um, archaeology, the study, which if you look at a textbook, archaeology or dictionary, I suppose, archaeology or Wikipedia is the uh, study of material culture of past humans. Like in other words, studying uh, the stuff that we leave behind. Or as I like to tell my students, I like to go through dead people's trash and yeah. spy on them because it's way easier than going through live people's trash and spying on them. Right. Um, but that's basically what we do. But the reality is, as much as that is reality of what we actually do, the reality of what people think we do or what the, or more importantly, why they care is often tied in with things that are mythic and mystical and sometimes really out there. And that's not new. And I think that that sort of theme, even though it's not what archaeologists primarily do, it's what a lot of people are interested in, kind of caught fire. And we were able to sort of say, hey, look, here's how the science works, but here is why this is what you think about it. Like, this is why you think and care about, like, the mummy's curse. And one of the things that I have been really gratified by, both working on the podcast but also um, in my own work, is that a lot of these ideas, there's sort of this stereotype that like, oh, it all comes from the movies and it all comes from video games. It all comes from comic books and all that. Uh, Actually, those things are in movies and comic books and video games because they come from the ideas and practices and basic concepts of archaeology. I mean, mean, look, if you've been Mm -hmm. to a movie theater recently, they're not that creative. No, no. they pick things that they know are going to sell. And that's not really a criticism. That's actually a pretty solid business model. And and a lot of these ideas actually come from two basic sources. One, how humans see the past, and we mm-hmm. can get into that. And then, uh, secondly, sort of the, the past history of archaeology and its entanglement with colonialism. Right, yeah. And I, I got to sort of you, – you don't do dinosaurs, do you? Well, that's the theme song. I will say, I will say, I will say, um, one of my favorite books is uh, by Adrienne Mayer, mm-hmm. uh, and she's also written about Amazons and other stuff like that. 
And her book, the one I'm thinking of, is called The First Fossil Hunters. Okay. And it's actually about how in the classical Mediterranean – she wrote one also about the uh, the New World. But her first one was on the classical Mediterranean and on how the Greeks and Romans interpreted ancient fossils and how occasionally archaeologists would in fact find fossils in Greek temples and palaces mm-hmm. because they were valued objects. And there's also – all sorts of fossils that are found in archaeological sites. And in the Maya world, for example, uh, particularly fossils of marine animals mm-hmm. were seen as particularly important. Shark's teeth, like giant like megalodon teeth, mm-hmm. as well as modern shark's teeth, are found in ritual caches. At the site of Palenque, there's some limestone sculptures that seem to be a been, have been particularly chosen because they had a lot of fossils. And there's a recently a really cool paper in, I believe, in antiquity about how big megalodon teeth were actually interpreted as the teeth of a a giant mythic monster shark of the past Hmm. that the Maya hero twins, um, Yashbalam and Hunahau, fought in the past. And while that's not dinosaurs, it's kind of close. So while I get that, a lot of people are like, oh, we study humans, not dinosaurs – I like look. I love dinosaurs as a kid. I kind of want to do both if you possibly can. So I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna crap on that. Yeah. The, 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 your your theme song. Now, now that was when I started binge listening to it. I I think it's like, you know, for about two months. I every day I was like singing that theme song to myself. We don't do dinosaurs. Who who? The, I have no idea. I I who I. Sings that, that is that is a question you'd have to ask Sarah. Okay. I don't know anything about that i'm not i'm not being coy i really don't i i've heard it i've listened to it uh and uh you know as much about it as i <laughs> okay Cause it almost sounds to me it sounds like your your other co-host ken 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 fader sounds oh yeah like, to me it sounds like him like i, I just thought he no was... it's not ken no oh, it's not oh, anybody oh, on the show yeah okay. i don't i uh it, it might be somebody who was on another show I, I that'd be my best guess i don't really know but no ken i I'm not going to say whether Ken has a singing voice. Ken has a cussing <laughs> voice. I will say the first time that he ever – I mean like I, I curse online. We've already done it. But uh, the first time I ever heard Ken, I had read Ken's books. I mean I, I read apparently like a year after it came out. I didn't realize it was very close after it came out. His 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 famous textbook, Frauds, Myths, and Mysteries, where he, he wasn't the absolute first person ever – to take on all of these weird ideas about archaeology. Right. There's probably a couple of people who could claim that. One would be Robert Walkup, who was a former director of the Middle American Research Institute at Tulane, my alma mater. Not just Tulane, but Middle American Research Institute. It's one of the sort of bastions of Maya archaeology. Uh, he wrote uh, a book in the 60s about that. But Ken wrote one later that's really become sort of like the core text on sort of like why do these things – you know why are these are these things true? Are they not true? How do we look at critical thinking? Uh, and it's like in its eighth or ninth edition, something like tenth edition, something like that right now. And um, uh, first time I heard Ken was on an episode of Monster Talk with Blake Smith on I think Giants. I think it was on the card of Giant. Right, right. Yeah. And Ken just comes right out of the bat, just like <laughs> swearing, swearing like a motherfucking sailor, and he's gotten that reputation. And I've not really made anything better. No. <laughs> like I, I love to point out archaeological fantasies to my students, but at the same time, I always have to say, be aware. <laughs> and this is God not safe for work language. It's not like creepy language. It's not like you're going to get in trouble for the concepts, 
But, like, you probably don't want it playing over the speakers at your office. I'm just saying. All right. Now, now there's there's two things in in, uh, archaeological fantasies I always wanted to ask. It's like one, um, I know Sarah Sarah does something called CRM. Now, from a business world, you know, customer relationship management, what does it mean in an archaeological world? It's not that. It's cultural resources management. So that term comes from... Uh, I was just about to say, I'm, I'm teaching some high school students this summer. We did this like summer camp thing. It's really cool. I just was doing that for like six hours today. It's awesome, actually. And I was taught, they, they asked about that yesterday. So I brought that up. Um, so there's a series of laws. I'm not going to get into all, but basically there's, there's a set of laws at the U.S. Like all nations, all nations have various laws about their heritage, archaeological sites, protecting important things. And there are also international agreements through UNESCO and so on. And, Probably, uh, I think probably you could argue it's the most important, although they all have their own importance, mm-hmm. like the Antiquities Act, which was unfortunately recently in the news, I believe last year, and it's continued due to an ex- executive order rolling some of its recent things back. Mm-hmm. Might be up to that. But in the 1960s, I believe 1966, you had the National Historic Preservation Act, which was basically drafted at the same time, excuse me, and in the same, uh, spirit as the Environmental Protection Act Mm -hmm. uh, in the United States that uh, basically there was at the time that there was increased interest and concern about uh, ecological resources. Uh, There was also concern about cultural resources because people began to realize that cultural and historical resources are in a sense – Non-renewable. You know, if you mm-hmm. if if you dynamite Independence Hall, it's not really there anymore. So that, that's a bit of an issue. So laws were passed at the federal level, and then a number of state laws sort of um, mimicked this uh, at the state level, uh, involving protection for and regulation of cultural resources management. So, for example, if you build a highway, I don't know what it is in Canada, and I'd be happy to hear this, actually, because I actually don't know the Canadian law on this. I know it on international things, but I don't know it on this. Um, if you're going to build a highway or if, you need a, if you're going to build a big project and you need federal or state permits, uh, in the U.S., there's the Environmental Protection Act where you're like, okay, you have to do a, um, uh, a study to basically mm-hmm. determine – what will the impact environmentally be? Well, this law also put in what would the impact culturally and historically be. So let's say the state of whatever, Nebraska, mm-hmm. uh, has is going to build a highway. It's got federal funds. They need federal permits. They have to be in compliance with Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act, which basically says they have to go out and see what's going to be the historical impact. So they will hire – and this is why it's also known as contract archaeology, a cultural resource management organization, a firm. Sometimes they're nonprofits associated with universities. I've worked for some of those. Sometimes they are for profits. I've worked for uh, one of those and subcontracted for some, where they will go out and they will do what needs to be done in advance of the project to determine what will the impact be. And depending on what they find, the project might need to have mitigation where they deal with it, or maybe they don't find much of a real interest. In other countries, for example, in the United Kingdom, this is known as uh, heritage mm-hmm. uh, archaeology. 
And I know there are laws like this in Canada. I just don't know those laws because I don't work in Canada. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to kind of circle back to CRM in a, in, in a moment. Yeah. The, the, sort of the other big question we had was, um, you know, like like you know, in Egypt, you've got pyramids, and you know, you got ziggurats, and and you know, castles, and and then you come to kind of North America, and you you know, sort of like our, our native sort of archaeological features, you call them mm-hmm. mounds. You know, like, yeah, like, like the most boring name possible. Oh, I know. Like why I have I have actually visited um sites in the American Southeast right. with people that do that stuff and my very first reaction was you know you probably should call these pyramids an acropoli because that's what we do with the stone pyramids and acropoli in in Mesoamerica now I don't want to get in trouble with people but uh I will instead get Tim Pocketat in trouble Tim Pocketat is a well-known archaeologist, and he's written several books on the site of Cahokia. Cahokia was the largest site in North America, north of the Rio Grande, so north of Mesoamerica, uh, for a very long time. It's in the St. Louis area. It's part of like a larger sort of settlement, part of which was under St. Louis. This is a 1,000 years ago. It was a city of 50,000 people at least, which would have been bigger than London or Paris at the time. Um, and like I always ask students and like at a group of like 50, maybe like three put their hands up. And I'm like, have you heard of this? Did you know there was a city of 50,000 people in the Middle Ages under St. Louis? And they're like, no, I've never heard any of this. Exactly. And, 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 and that's because of this. I think a lot of colonial aspects of sort of minimizing the history of indigenous Americans. Uh, and in the 19th century, the mound builders were this like there was this idea so basically, prior to um, the American Revolution, prior to the unpleasantness with uh, Great Britain in the 1770s and 80s, um, there and part of the, one of the reasons for this was that the the British Empire had a lot of alliances with indigenous groups west of the and, and some east of, but definitely mm-hmm. west of the Appalachian Mountains. When the North American colonists won and they created the United States, they started flooding west. And into places like Ohio. And they started running into ancient and some not so ancient settlements with large earthen works. You can call them mounds. You can call them pyramids. There's different kinds. Um, And around that time, they started making up myths. They started making up stories that these things had been built. And, And by the way. I'm saying this, but I'm also sort of paraphrasing some ideas or including some ideas from Tim Pocketat. So email him. Find his email and email him when you get angry. Um, But uh, they started finding these things, and they're like, this is amazing. That's a pyramid. Now, remember, this is at the time period when, like, the Rosetta Stone has just been found. Right, right. And, And the Maya stuff has actually not even been found yet. Like, well, it has, but like most people in the world are not aware that there are giant friggin' pyramids in, in Mesoamerica. And, and so they're finding like huge earthen pyramids and acropoli and walls and roads and all of this. And they're like, wow, this is amazing. We don't like these people over here, these quote unquote savages that we don't like. So it couldn't have been them. So instead, it must have been somebody awesome. And because it's the 19th century, and we're kind of sort of racist, because they're awesome, they must have been white. Right, right. And so they started creating this idea of a white mound builder race that had been wiped out 
by quote unquote their thing red savages and this was actually cited by people like for example the united states president andrew jackson when he called for the indian removal act which is what creates the trail of tears the ethnic cleansing of this of the eastern united states at gunpoint of all the various people like the seminole and the cherokee who are pushed west into quote unquote indian country in what is now oklahoma mm-hmm. and other places um, and so there's all this People are like, oh, no, these are amazing, and, and they're fantastic, and they want them. And by the 1850s and 60s, even before, but especially at that point and after, there start to be lots of hoaxes where it's like, oh, look, I've dug in this mound site, and I found stones that are carved in Hebrew. Right. That must have been the lost tribes of Israel here. And they do find stones carved in Hebrew. They're carved in Hebrew in a 19th century typeface. <laughs> right, yeah. It's like using hey, modern Hebrew and things like that. Oh yeah. Yeah, modern Hebrew for like a printing press. Like, hmm, I want to make a Roman artifact. Well, Times New Roman, that's Roman. Why don't I use that? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's pretty much like that. And in fact, when this was pointed out, the next one that was found at that site in Hebrew didn't do that anymore because apparently they paid attention. Um so there were a lot of those, but in the later 19th century, there was increasing fascination by Americans in this. So it was actually the first serious federally funded archaeology and some of the first serious federally funded science to determine what was the deal with this mound builder race. We want to know. So they found a guy who was initially very open to the idea and he started looking at what archaeologists were doing across the United States in the early, in the late 19th century by his name is Cyrus Thomas. And he's like, um, actually, Everything about these kind of sort of says that they're Native American. Right. You know? And here's the thing. Pocketat pointed this out. I say this all the time to students and other people on my present and whatnot. But Tim Pocketat is like, look, as soon as that was said in 1890, I think it's no accident that in 1890 the frontier was considered officially closed. And this was no longer really useful against a no longer existing indigenous military threat. Right. Um, Pocketat points out that as soon as these things started to be labeled as, oh, no, 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 white people didn't build these. Indigenous people built them. Like, oh, they're oh, they're just mounds. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I hate to say that, but I, I think that's why my students don't know about it. I mean, they, it's not their fault. You know, it's it's the culture. And But no, I, I do think that that once they were considered to be that, there was a lack of, of interest. I mean, as I tell my students, I live in Oxford, Ohio, just southwest of Dayton, like a 50-minute 50, 50 drive from here, um, there's a 60-foot-tall pyramid. Yeah. It's earth. It's not stone. But, I mean, there was a burial in it, and it, it's 2,000 years old. I mean, come on. Yeah. Like, how is that not amazing? And I tell students, they're like, I had, I had, I had no idea. Yeah. And, and they don't. They really don't. And, and that's, I, I don't think, very unusual uh, but it, it is a colonial thing, and you see this not just in the U.S., where you have colonial situations, people will do this, uh, where they will sort of create these fictive pasts. And I think part of it is, oh, we want to you know, deny these people, but I think a lot of it actually is also they want their own identity mm-hmm. in, in a place, and particularly in the Americas, where until – the 1500s, the Americas were in no books. I mean, it's not like, you know, North America shows up in the Bible yeah. or in Herodotus or any of these other things. I think there is this hunger to put 
roots down to put to 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 enchant the landscape with meaning right. and and I think this continues all the way to the present because everything I just said it kind of sounds like what people do today with ancient aliens it's like oh look uh, there's these amazing things and, and the people there couldn't have done it so uh aliens from a technological civilization that I kind of sort of think of as like mine right yeah yeah, I mean, one of the things I really loved about, uh, or love about, um, um, let's call it Sarah's podcast. Let's get sure, her, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah, the archaeological and, place. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And well, of which you are uh, a co-host is is that you guys, um, you know, you it, it, you constantly repeat the idea that you know just just because you you someone unearths a, a you know a tablet with Hebrew or you know with like Viking runes or something like that, that, that doesn't mean you're going to rewrite the history books. That 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 as archaeologists, right? You're like, okay, that that's nice, but there had to be a civilization there to build it. There had to be well, where are their the thing, garbage dumps and where are their well, exactly, kilns exactly. and their burial mounds and yeah, the, and the that's, that's what you look for. The thing that's fascinating is when you find these things. There was like, I found a sculpture of an Egyptian monument. It's like, did 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 did, did you find Egyptian houses? Did did you find Egyptian pottery? Yeah. Did you find Egyptian anything, uh, or or another one? Um, one that's that's increasingly popular is that the Shang Chinese, which are awesome people. It's it's the first really like uh, the, the first history, uh, twelve hundred about seventeen hundred BCE in China, um, and very cool. And they have the earliest writing on oracle bones, and there are people like oh the people in Mesoamerica they like jade. The, the Shang love jade. That's true. And the, the Olmecs are around the same time as the Shang. That's also true. And like, and some of the scratches on their jade look like Shang writing. I'm like, I actually don't believe that one. And I'm like, here's the thing. The most famous artifacts from Shang society are bronze. Mm-hmm. You know what you don't find in Olmec sites? Bronze. Right, right. You know what you also don't find? Well, anybody with Chinese, any genetics or strontium or anything like that, you also don't find oxen. You don't find their wheeled chariots and carts. You don't find their bronze. You don't find their rice. You don't find their rammed earth. You don't find their pottery. You don't find – I mean just yeah. like all the rest of the society is not there. Right, yeah. and, and that's the thing. Like if you found and, – and, and here's the thing. There were Vikings in North America. Mm-hmm. Very eastern North America, but there's a site. Newfoundland. Yeah, there's Newfoundland. There's a site called Lanso Meadow. And Lanso Meadow doesn't have a giant friggin' runestone. It doesn't have like a, a, a portrait of a stereotypical Viking. You know what it's got? Is it's got Norse style housing. Right. And metalworking. And other stuff that if you actually lived there and lived in a Norse way, you'd leave behind. Right, yeah. And, 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 you know, and that's the thing. Now, why is it always writing and art? And I think the reason there is, um, so one of the things I think that's really important, and I've written about in various places, uh, including my most recent stuff, is, uh, and I, and I do take this from other people and I cite it there, I just can't cite it right now, is that there seem to be two basic ways that humans around the world, I mean, there are exceptions to this, but generally speaking, there are two ways that humans around the world seem to parse out time, seem to sort of perceive time. And uh, in the long sense, in the past sense, I don't mean like it's time to lunch, it's time to lunch. That's just a slow <laughs> clock. But um, it's one, the time of people. You could also call it the time of names, 
Some people have called it scientific time for certain reasons, but I think the time of names or the time of people is a really good one, or human time, where it's the last couple hundred years, and sometimes written history extends it, mm-hmm. and oral history can maybe extend it, but then you get into other issues that we're not going to get into of accuracy. But that's, that's really a different topic. Whether it's accurate or not, that's not important. But if it's like, look, People lived here 200 years ago or X number or like in the past. Well, who were they? Well, they were my great-grandfather's people or like, oh, I knew the family that lived there and so on. And you treat them like people. So, for example, in, in my country, you've got George Washington. Now, there's a lot of things that are said about George Washington that are less than true. <laughs> I don't know if he ever told a lie about a cherry tree but that's pretty clearly like some kind of weird moral tale. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he cracked the walnut with his hands. I don't know if he threw a coin across the Potomac with his hands. But here's the thing. We think of him like a human person. We criticize him for owning slaves. We criticize him for this. We praise him for this. We look at his morals when he's president. We treat him as human. He may have like legendary and mythic qualities, but we generally treat him as human. But you move farther back. Once you get past the last few hundred years, and again, I, I put some caveats on that earlier, things, once you can't really tie the past directly to people that you know or have heard of, mm-hmm. then you get into sort of more mythic time. Now, mythic doesn't mean false. I don't mean that in the sense mm-hmm. of mythbusters. Instead, mythic here in concepts of like sort of study of religion, anthropology, etc., is big stories that come from sort of beyond human space and time that explain how things are. So uh, the big ones, of course, are sort of like origin stories, creation stories. Why is the world the way it is? Why do we behave the way we do? Why is the world organized the way it is? Is often said at the beginning of time. And actually around the world, a lot of things we do with religion and monuments and commemoration and memory are often attempts to sort of capture aspects of that beginning because that beginning explains how we are. And so why I think that's really important is when you look at the past, you have basically two sort of domains. One is the domain of people, and that's a domain that's related to either memory or to writing. Mm -hmm. And the other one is bigger than us. So if it's in sort of a continuation, like, oh, these are people related to us, it's either oral history, which if you're in, say, Ohio and you don't want to connect to Native American people, then you're going to focus on a written thing. So like, oh, a Hebrew thing, not not unlike the Bible or Phoenicians or this or that. You know, you expand that out. Once you get beyond that, then you get into a space that is bigger than people, bigger than humans, and I think that that spawns a lot of things like ancient aliens, but even before ancient aliens, it spawns things like, oh, I find a stone tool. Well, until the 17th century, people in Europe, for example, when they would find a stone tool, like an ancient Neolithic arrowhead or something, they didn't think it was like, oh, somebody like me made this and they lost it. It's like, oh, no, elves made this because somebody (laughs) made it. I mean, they could tell somebody made it, but they're like, did we make this? No. Did King Elderverd make it? No. Did the Romans, the first people we can write about, make it? No. Well, then, elves? I think <laughs> elves. And, and around the world, you find this because 
once people kind of get stumped for, well, it's not in our written histories because that's how they saw the past is through writing, then, well, somebody made it, but if it's not us, then maybe there's somebody who's not us. Right, right. And, and there lies elves and aliens and so on. Right, yeah. I mean, it's sort of the, right. I, you know, I, the, I, I don't know. Therefore, I know. You know, it's like I, I, yeah, no. Insert, just, insert whatever fantasy you wish. Right, and, and and I and I think it does differ. But the thing that's interesting is you go around the world, and those fantasies often come out fairly similar. And I suspect that has a lot to do with how we sort of you know do cognition and how we perceive stuff and how we kind of problem solve. But no, it is often writing. When people make hoaxes and whatnot, it's often because that that just screams out. It's like, I mean, let's be even blunter. Like, do you do you know what? So, like, I can't write in Hebrew, but I at least vaguely know what Hebrew writing looks like. Mm -hmm. But like, unless I went and took a crash course in like Iron Age, Judean, whatever, do I know what Hebrew pottery looks like from the first millennium BCE? Like, I'm an archaeologist and I don't know. I'm like, well, it probably looks like vessel i don't know <laughs> so like that doesn't scream it out even if you know no one else is going to know but if you're like oh it's written in runes well that's easy so i think these are very like showy symbolic things uh that often are focused on and then the other one is i think there's sort of this attitude that everybody can be an art historian everybody can be an art interpreter where you know it's like the Da Vinci Code. Like what's mm-hmm. what's the dude? What's the dude in the Da Vinci Code? He's like he's a a symbologist. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Where I'm like, isn't that just like a an art historian? <laughs> Doesn't that exist? Like there was there was a trend a few years ago. I don't know if this still exists. I'm probably going to offend somebody. There was somebody I think who was a, a one of the founders of Microsoft. So he's you know really rich, and he really was interested in the idea of um, what was called deep history. Like history that's not just the last 5,000 years, but goes way farther back and includes like ecological information. I'm like, you know, history before writing that includes like ecology and change through time. I'm not saying that archaeology has existed for over 200 years, but it kind of has. Right, yeah. You know, and, and, and so there, there, there's that as well. But no, I, I think when people make these hoaxes or when they want to interpret real things on their own, and we can get into maybe why they want to do it on their own rather than listen to experts and institutions, and that gets into conspiracy stuff, um, it's often like really flashy things that seem easy to interpret even if they're not. Right, yeah. And, and you know, kind of circling back to CRM, right? I mean, when you you're digging highways and you're digging new buildings and and stuff like that, you know, you're doing archaeological surveys, and and you know, there's this idea that um, you know um, you're uncovering you know giants and you're uncovering you know um, you know you know Hebrew ships and things like this and Roman swords and and as archaeologists, you're you're making this stuff disappear to oh. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, so it, that idea is not entirely new. So now, one person, if if your listeners don't know about about uh, this website, they should absolutely check it out. Uh, Jason Colavito, he is not an archaeologist, but he has done so much work on just unearthing all the background to all of these like weird ideas. I mean, like I've done a bunch of this, but I you know I cite Jason all the time, and he blogs 
five days out of seven a week. He did seven out of seven. Then he realized he was going to go mad, so he, he cut it back a little. Um, but he uh, writes so much about this, and, and he argues that the idea that um, archaeologists are hiding things – uh, particularly giants, starts uh, with the Smithsonian in the 1990s. And I think the particular one he's looking at there, that's probably true to some degree. But, of course, the idea goes back earlier. I mean, you know, I'm a proper Gen Xer, so, I mean, I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark when I was a kid yeah, at yeah. some point. And, of course, they have that scene in there, and that scene caught everybody's imagination because that idea already made some sense. One could argue that that goes back to Eilish Herdlicka, which I'm probably butchering his Eastern European name, uh, sort of poo-pooing the idea of giants for the Smithsonian back in the 30s. And the Smithsonian was involved with, uh, in the 1800s, late 1800s, with the investigation of the Mound Builder myth. And then when it became the, like, oh, we investigated, it turns out it's all utter bullshit uh, with saying that. Funny story, the Smithsonian owes at least a little of its origins, not all of it, but a little bit of its origins, to... The Hollow Earth. Oh, really? Yeah. So there was um, the idea of a Hollow Earth. Uh, it has various followers. One of the big ones was Edmund ha- Edmund Haley, as in like Haley's Comet in the 18th century. Well, there was a guy by the name of Sims or Symes S Y. I think it's Sims S Y M M E S. Uh, that settled, his father settled, and then he was, uh, his father was a Revolutionary War hero, his, 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 uh, so this is probably bad for, you know, Canadian audience, it's not really a hero, more of a villain, because uh, his son was a 1812 war hero. Mm-hmm. His son was particularly interested in the Hollow Earth, and he created, he, he printed out at great expense something he called Circular Number One, which included in it a statement that he was not insane. Which is how you always <laughs> should start any project proposal. As a, he, sorry, as a professor, do you get a lot of those letters from from cranks? I'm not insane. Um, I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to ask for them. I occasionally get things. I haven't gotten as. I don't think I've gotten as many as Ken. I think it's just a matter of time. Okay, okay. But uh, uh, we do get occasionally stuff though. Okay. But, sorry. sorry um, back, back, back to your, back to. Your. No, no, no worries. No worries. But he he sent it to every member of the U.S. Congress and to other important people, where he's like, look. The hollow earth is a thing. Edmund Halley from the last century, the, the important scientist said it was a thing. And as a, and a growing republic, we should totally colonize I'm, – I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> we should totally colonize the hollow earth and make it American. And he, he really wanted the Congress to, to, to do a big scientific expedition. Congress had never done a scientific expedition at this point. So – That didn't really go over well, but he did have a few supporters who I think probably were like, hollow earth, eh." but eventually some of his supporters did actually influence Congress, and there was an expedition into the South Atlantic, a naval expedition that went to South America and Antarctica and collected a lot of scientific samples, and they brought back in the middle of the 19th century those scientific samples – and at some point, they're like, well, where the hell do we store these? Mm. And at that same time, there was the beginning to be talk of founding a national museum. And these two things collided. Mm. And, in fact, this was one of the impetus for the creation of the Smithsonian Institute Institution as the National Museum of the United States. Now, I live in Oxford, Ohio, and about 20 miles from here, like 20 minutes, or 15 minutes drive, it's not very far at all. That's where Sims lived. There's a monument in a park to him, and on the top of that monument 
is a concrete model of the hollow Earth. <laughs> it's literally a globe with latitude and longitude lines on it with a hole through the middle. Oh, that's awesome. It kind of is, yeah. Uh, it, it's it's. I had known about that, but when I moved out here, when I when I got this job a number of years ago, one of the first things I did was to go out and get a picture of the Sims Monument to the Hollow Earth. Now, wasn't the Smithsonian? I mean, wasn't it? I mean, this this is book of lists uh, level, you know, research. I mean, I, I thought it was like some British guy just who almost had no connection to the United States just left a. a, a Part of his inheritance. To the there United were, States. there were, there was some of that. There was. I, I'd have to look at the specific things, but I know there was a uh, like an endowment of stuff mm-hmm. and money. But there were several confluences. That's why I'd say the Hollow okay. Earth was only one part of it. It wasn't right, right, like yeah. that was the main part. Right, right, but it's sort of like things were coming together. It's like, oh, this guy's got a collection and money, and we have this other collection. Let's just stick this all together. Right, right. Okay. And, and, and that, and that was to some degree. And that, of course, is, is how a lot of these things happen. I mean, you know, I was just. Uh, I was recently in the UK and the British Museum at one point started as basically this guy's collection and then it got sort of out of hand and the government <laughs> took it over and then I was like, well, let's steal some things from Greece and stick them in there or take them from, you know, I don't want to get into that. <laughs> but uh, uh, The, El- the Elgin know. Marbles, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 it's not my country. I, yeah. I don't want to totally get in that. I'm not a classicist, but, but that said, right, Greece... Right. Clearly, kind of wants him back. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I think but, you, I think you guys got our, our Astrolab. Is that how you pronounce it? Astrolabe, Astro, Astrolabe. Uh, Jacques, Jacques Cartier, his uh, his um, you know his Astrolabe. We used to sort of navigate. I, th- I think that somehow ended up in American hands, and we would like that back too. I cannot speak for America. Okay. I a do not know this. I am not covering it up. And B, I have no decision making <laughs> capabilities on this. But I wouldn't be stunned. I would not be stunned at all. Um, no, the the history of museums and whatnot mm-hmm. is 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 absolutely. I, I told my students this yesterday. Uh, the high school ones I'm talking to. There there are several books by uh, Bruns and and Olson. I think are, are one example on like. Uh, uh, fakes on uh, fakes in Mesoamerica uh, and in South America, and they estimate. And I've seen other estimates that kind of agree with this: that up to thirty or more percent mm-hmm. of objects in museums are potentially fakes. But, yeah, yeah. Which is terrifying to think about. But of course, the reason for that is that in the bad old days, and sometimes the the recent days, uh, <clears throat> uh, Hobby Lobby settlement. Uh, mm. It's open. I'm, I'm not like saying anything. Uh, in case you're wondering what we're talking about, the um, the Hobby Lobby Corporation was involved because its former like founder is the force behind the Museum of the Bible that recently opened in right, Washington right, yeah. D.C. and they imported a lot of stuff that turned out to be um, looted from uh, <laughs> from Iraq. But uh, museums were very dependent for a long time. Once archaeology began to professionalize. Archaeologists were less keen, and also nations began to say, "Yeah, know what? No, you can't have these things." Um, they sort of had to sometimes rely on sketchy obtainers of rare antiquities uh, to fill their coffers, and so all these things would maybe not have provenience. And so, since they don't have provenience, it was easy for fakes to flood in because it's like, "Well, where's this come from? I don't know." So, so it could be real, it could be not. Um, and there's a lot of that out there. There, there are certain kinds of artifacts out there. For example, uh, where there's one particular kind of artifact, a certain kind of vase in 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 Mesoamerica, where there's an expert who's looked at them, and she literally says, 
half of the ones that are in museums or in private hands are fake. Hmm. Half. Wow. That's crazy. Well, there's a perceived market out there, at least, right? Oh, it's a massive market. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people. Will... I mean, so yeah, I mean, and 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 it feeds it. Well, it, it feeds forgery and it feeds looting. I mean, one of the courses I teach is culture, art, and artifact, and mm-hmm. I sort of took that title and I ran with it. So we talk about like, oh, art and art, sort of art history style iconography and. Uh, art in terms of how we make art, but it also turned into forgery and looting because when you have a market and it's a market collide with cultural heritage, you're going to get people who will make things and lie about it, and you're going to get people who will steal things and lie about it because money. And and so that's a huge, huge issue. So there's a lot of issues with you know sort of the history of these things and looting and history things and. Um, and forgery, and one of the places this gets fascinating, for example, is with, uh, for example, one of the most famous sort of archaeo weirdness things, crystal skulls. Right. Yeah. There, there are a number of these things around the world. There's, there's one in the Smithsonian. There's one in the British Museum. There's one, I believe, in the Louvre, and there's several in private hands. And they appear, not necessarily all of them, but most of them appear to have been placed through one store or one storekeeper. A guy by the name of uh, Eugene Bobon, mm-hmm. uh, who had stores in Paris and Mexico City in the late 19th century, turns out Victorian is a thing. An archaeological fantasy is I've made Victorian a drinking word, um, <laughs> but uh, um, the all of these things have now been studied, or at least most of them have, uh, and they clearly are of 19th or early 20th century manufacture, right. uh, based on scanning electron microscopy of the tooling marks. Based on residue of early early 20th century uh, lubricants, artificial lubricants, and but because these things were flooding into museums without provenience, there was a lot of questions. Like, are these things real? Are some of them real? Are some of them not? And as they became, as they got into museums, that then gave them legitimacy, and then all these sorts of weird myths started to pop up around them. That like, oh, they're from Atlantis, and they channel energy, and they're alien, and blah blah blah. And today, there's a lot of good work out there showing no, these are sort of Western concepts or Western interpretations of Aztec this, that, and the other, uh, mixed with Western occult concepts. Because I mean, they're basically crystal balls if you think about it that right, way, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they're seen that way. But with a sort of exotic twist. And, of course, now you can go online and buy any number of the damn things. Right. Or Dan Aykroyd is putting vodka in them. Oh, yes. I'm not going to say I've drank at least two of them, but <laughs> I have. And, and his, his first ad for this, if you don't know, the actor Dan Aykroyd, one of the co-authors of Ghostbusters mm-hmm. and all these other things, super obsessed with the paranormal, yeah, right. as was his father. And... Uh, he did an ad in 2008 on early YouTube where he's selling these crystal head vodkas that he was selling. They did not expect them to take off and become super famous. And this ad is like a, almost a, almost feels like a parody or a loving homage of like In Search Of, right, where yeah. Dan Aykroyd in full on, in 1909, the people of blah, 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 like that kind of way he talks, is selling you a bottle of vodka with mystical properties. <laughs> and I totally, as soon as I saw that YouTube video, I'm like, I gotta get one of these. And I went on like an epic quest to, uh, to be fair, to Missouri, uh, to, to find one, uh, when I was living in Illinois. And to be fair, it was good and, and the bottle's amazing. But, um, 
Yeah, no, no, they, they and this was right around the time, of course, that one of those Indiana Jones movies came out where it has those in there. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Now uh, speaking about books, like we should mention you, you, you have written a book, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I have uh, uh, two edited volumes. One which may be of interest to your your audience: uh, hybrid material culture, archaeology, blah blah blah. The other one, more interest of your your audience. Lost City Found Pyramid that I edited with Dave Anderson that came out in 2016. But most recently, uh, I put out with University of New Mexico Press, Spooky Archaeology, uh, Myth and the Science of the Past. And that's a just straight up written by me book, which is pretty much about all what we've been talking about. Uh, the sort of the one sentence elevator pitch is, why do things like Indiana Jones, Ancient Aliens, and The Mummy's Curse exist, and why are they important? Right, yeah, and uh, it, it, and it's it's you can get it Amazon. Uh, yeah, I mean you can basically look for it. I mean yeah. uh, the the initial run is a, is a certain amount. It's gonna be hardcover, and then they're gonna go for a, a a soft cover, presuming the initial run sells out pretty quickly, which I, I'm hoping it does. Uh, but yeah, it came out in June, and it covers everything from why are there hieroglyphs and crashed UFOs yeah. to why, if you dig up Celtic stone heads that are not actually Celtic stone heads that are relatively recent, why do you get haunted by spectral werewolves? To why is King Tut actually Cthulhu? To why do people say they don't need to hear about experts, whether it's in this government or that government? It really covers like a, a sort of wide stance of things. Right. How, how long did it take you to, to write that book? Um, there were elements of it I was working on a while ago, like okay. almost almost a decade ago. Right, okay. uh, elements of it, however, um, I really started working on it in Syria. I, I was approached. I gave a paper that was sort of like literally a fifteen minute paper mm-hmm. at the American Anthropological Association meetings in 2012, and a representative from the press saw it and was like, you know, we think there's something to this. So we talked, and I actually let it go for about a year as mm-hmm. I was sort of. This is just a new job and, you know, overwhelmed. Yeah. yeah. And um, basically between 2014 and 2016 was a lot of the work, most of the work. Not all of it, but I would say the bulk of it, <laughs> of a mixture of, you know, obviously library research and other kinds of work. But, I mean, also uh, a mixture of museum back backrooms work and also archival work. So, I mean, right, yeah. one of the things I did, and I don't, uh, we can get into this, but – uh, I went to the National Archives in London and pulled an unsolved murder file from Scotland Yard involving witchcraft. Wow. And I don't mean years ago. I mean a lot more recently. Right. That involved an archaeologist. And uh, I recently went to the scene of the murder, uh, which I don't believe involved witchcraft, but right. it came to be believed it did. It involved archaeology. Uh, and also going to some artifacts in various museums, including the, the British Museum and other things, looking at that. And then also found at my own institution in our basement four artifacts alleged to be involved with a continent that never actually existed. <laughs> yeah, I have glyph stones related to the lost continent of Mu, which wasn't real. Wow. Okay. Yet, uh, yet they are in my office. And take t- think about that for a second. It's like, no, these are real rocks. Right. Sort of. But... There, yeah, there's a long history behind these alleged glyph stones that are associated with sort of a Pacific version of the continent of Atlantis, right. 
Uh, they're part of a, a, a very famous archaeological, I would say it's a hoax, but it gets complicated, uh, from the early 20th century that had gone missing. And after I had signed the contract for the book, I found them in our basement, which is really, really <laughs> weird. And I've since found a few others, and there's been other developments. All right. This, uh, this, listen, Harvard has more than you? Or is <laughs> yeah, so so the, the, there were 2,600 of these right, so-called right, yeah. moose stones that had been dug up in Azcapotzalco and other places in the outskirts of, at that time, outskirts of Mexico City, now they're just part of Mexico City. Uh, and they almost all disappeared. Harvard had six. Right, yeah, yeah. And I had forgotten that they had them. They had been written about by uh, Stephen Williams in a book called Fantastic Archaeology in 1990, but like a page, like a page and a half in one picture. And if you go to like a lot of like – you go to Wikipedia and you look this up. They talk about it like – and they're all gone. I'm like, no, they're not. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and you look in like you know people writing about like this stuff and like, oh, they all disappeared and all there are is now drawings. It's like, well, no, one, there's six at Harvard. Yeah. And then I found four uh, at Miami uh, in Ohio. And we've since found one in New Orleans, and I've uncovered uh, several others that I can't quite talk about. Um, but yeah, no, we've been able to sort of sleuth some more of these things out, including in New Orleans, original paperwork with them, which is is really interesting, wow, like original, okay. like handwritten stuff from the excavator and from the guy most associated with the lost continent of Moo, right, okay. Colonel James Churchward. And this, like, this stuff also then inspires stuff like Lovecraft. Like, this shows up in, in Lovecraft's work. Right, right. Uh, his fiction. Uh, he writes a story that, that mentions Moo. And yeah, no, it, it, I had to go to my editor at that point. It's like, look, I'm going to show you something. It's an absolutely legitimate fake. I did not fake these because you gave me a contract. I found these fake, legitimate fake things <laughs> in our basement, totally unrelated. I'm sure I sounded very credible when I came to him and said yeah. this, you know, at an archaeological meeting. You know, working working in my book, my my book is tentatively titled. Uh, it's about Canadian conspiracy theories, and it's tentatively Ooh. titled. Um, you can have my health card when you pry it from my cold dead hands. <laughs> it, it, it's actually it's actually it's directed at a, an American audience for uh -huh. Americans who are like you know Canada's this escape pod to sanity. I, I got to move to Canada. I, I, I want to sort of like. We're a little bit more sane here, but we got our own batshit crazy. Oh yeah. And, yeah, and 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 it explains a lot of Canadian history and politics. And um, you know, as sort of researching it, I, I discover this this guy. His name's Glenn Keeley. He's still alive, so I can't okay. I can't slander him. Can't slander uh, him too much. Yeah, but he, the, the 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 dude is legitimately. Uh, and uh, but he started off not, and then went. But he's this fascinating character, and 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 and. Part of the, you know, I, I got hung up just going down this track, this Glenn Keeley guy, and uh, and you know, and and, it, and uh, did you find this when you wrote your book? You found a some person you never knew about, and then just it just oh, yeah. took you down. A well, for example, I had um, so my book has ten chapters, uh, has eleven chapters, it's like there's a there's a finale, so eleven chapters. Um, three of the chapters. I think initially we're going to be at most one or two, and they just expanded. So uh, one, so one of them, uh, one of the things that was before the book really became what it was. I, I did want to write uh, sort of archaeology and the Pulp Fiction writer H.P. Lovecraft, mm -hmm. and that became a chapter. 
But, for example, I started really going down the rabbit hole of one of his massive influences, uh, uh, Egyptologist Margaret Murray, who is oh, also yeah. well known for being one of the inspirations for neo-paganism and the creation particularly of Wicca and the idea of uh, the, the sort of ancient witch cult. She didn't – she's not the only person responsible for it. She's probably the person most responsible for that idea. And that became its own chapter talking about like supernatural detectives and that got split off from another chapter that just exploded about archaeologists and spies because right. I just started finding so – I mean I, for example, I'm a, I, I've done more than a few things in my archaeology as well as other kinds. Before about 1930, finding a Maya archaeologist who's either not looking for Atlantis or is not a spy, <laughs> there are some, but they're not common. Right. It's one or the other and occasionally both. And then I ran into one I had no idea about who was basically the mastermind behind the CIA's first coup. In, in, in 1953, the CIA overthrows the, the government of Iran and mm. in places the Shah, which then, you know, that never goes wrong 30, <laughs> tw 20 years later, yeah. um, it was masterminded by an archaeologist because actually a lot of the intelligence operatives in the Middle East until about the 1950s and 60s were archaeologists. I mean, the primary intelligence operatives or, or masterminds in the World War One for the British Empire in the Middle East were archaeologists. And you know at least the name of one of them, T.E. Lawrence, a.k.a. Lawrence of Arabia. Wow, okay. And Leonard Woolley and, and uh, Sir Leonard Woolley and Gertrude Bell, who's often considered one of the people most responsible for the creation of Iraq, <laughs> uh, they were all archaeologists. They were considered, the, they were called the Oxford Four. And they were all archaeologists, but they then basically became the, the espionage apparatus for the British Empire in the early 20th century. And they were by no means alone. One of the great founders of Maya archaeology, Sylvanus Griswold Morley, and I did know this before the book, he was considered one of the best agents in the early 20th century for the United States. Uh, he, was, uh, he led an entire cell for the Office of Naval Intelligence. And in fact, when this got not outed the names, but just outed that it existed by who's often considered by Franz Boas, who's often considered the father of American anthropology, he more or less got kicked out of the American Anthropological Association. They eventually apologized <laughs> in 2005. Oh, dear. Like 84 years later. Right. And, and so, so no, so they, no, I, I ran down these rabbit holes. Yeah. One that I had no idea of. This guy by the name of Charles Agogino, he was an archaeologist, and he also worked for the OSS and the CIA, and he also went looking for the Yeti. <laughs> like, just think about that for a second. Like, that's just straight up amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, no, the, the, the whole book, honestly, the book is basically an entire warren of rabbit holes. Yeah, yeah. Like, like there's, there's really no better way to, to put it, because... Uh, once you start getting into that history, it just goes, it just goes nuts. Yeah, right. the, that that woman archaeologist. Um, now she, she kind of she was like auditing courses, and they weren't going to give her a degree. And then Margaret Murray. Right, so right. Margaret Murray, she she was a student, and then later sort of the the right hand woman of uh, uh, Flinders Petrie. Flinders Petrie is often considered the first scientific Egyptologist. So there had been people since the late. I mean, so Egypt was a fascination of, of outsiders for 
you know, millennia right. since the Greeks and so on. And European scholars became fascinated with Egypt uh, in the Renaissance, but they saw it as all very mystical, some of which was coming from Arab scholars before that. And uh, by the 18th century, there was the idea that Egypt, no, it's a real place, there's a lot of mysticism, but there was already the beginning of a scholarly Egyptology. And then, of course, the discovery of the Rosetta Stone and then the uh, decipherment of Egyptian hieroglyphs in the early 1800s, 1822, by a number of people, most famously Francois Champollion, completely transforms Egyptology. But prior to the late 19th century, a lot of that was very focused on uh, hieroglyphs and artwork and going in tombs. Uh, Petrie was one of the first who wanted to do just straight-up scientific archaeology, including on things before history, like on what we would consider prehistoric Egypt, before the great kings. And so he, he trained Margaret Murray at the University College London. She was a suffragette and she protested for human, for, for women's rights. And one of the things that happened was she writes about this in her autobiography. Her autobiography is called My First 100 Years. It's published <laughs> uh, right around her 100th birthday and then she dies. So that's pretty much the best timing ever. Right, right. But she writes about how she took all the coursework, and then UCL was going to be like, oh, that's wonderful, but, you know, you're a woman, so you don't get the degree. It's like, what, 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 what? And so she basically forced him to do that and change it for other women. And then she taught a lot of his courses and then taught her own courses and all this. But she was a field Egyptologist. Uh, but then in World War I, uh, when going to Egypt was not quite so possible – she focused a lot of her interests on European myth and archaeology and folklore and went down sort of this other path. But she did go back to the Middle East and, and worked with um, Petrie uh, in various ways. I mean, or at least partially, yeah. She, she's, she's, is she, now she, she's kind of the source of the, uh, I mean, you know, today in a lot of um, things, there's, there's a idea of there's this kind of, Hidden sort of, um, you know, kind of mother goddess religion that 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 you know that Christianity is sort of kind suppressed of suppressed and turned yeah, into yeah, demonized, exactly. literally demonized. Yeah, yeah. And is she she isn't she kind of one of the sort of the genesis of the? Of the of she's that? she's a genesis. She doesn't invent it. There, okay. the idea is out there before, and it's a common idea in the 19th century. And some people were saying it because they liked it, and some people were saying it because they didn't. So you have some like romantics who. Uh, are really against the modern church and modern moral strictures who are like, oh, there was this ancient religion, and others who are like, oh, clearly the most primitive part of the human intellect must be the beginning when it was primitive and it must have been run by women because we're jackasses. <laughs> um, so, so you had a combo of that, but you did have several people who, who created this idea that there had been an, an ancient religion and it persisted to the de to the present in folklore, uh, the idea that if you go into the Italian landscape and the, the Italian uh, rural areas in the 19th century, you would find things that could go back before the Romans. Right. And, and a lot of this is romanticism. A lot of this is an attempt, not unlike what I was saying, what they were sort of faking in, in the Americas, of like, we want a, a, a connection to an ancient mythic past that explains mm -hmm. why things are the way they are. And so in the Americas, they make up that the lost tribes of Israel wandered to Ohio. In Europe, it's, well, can we find the earliest German? Now, remember, this is also the time of um, growing nationalism. Mm -hmm. Can we find the earliest German? 
Can we find the earliest Frenchman? Can we find the earliest Briton? Which, of course, gives us things like Piltdown Man. Right, right, yeah. uh, and so Murray's uh, honest, I, I would say inaccurate, but honest attempts at using witch trial documents and other folklore to try to find an ancient religion is really part and parcel of that. But she does it a little later, and then it gets picked up by others like Gerald Gardner, who become founders of Wicca and other neo-pagan movements. Right, right, yeah. I mean, not not to say that the you know the the church didn't you know try to stomp out you know some some of the, the, these local local beliefs and sort of overlay their right. their own thing. But there were yeah. local beliefs. There yeah. were folk religions. There were or were folk religious elements. But it's one thing to say, oh, these people have an element of Christianity that may be syncretized with other aspects from the Roman Empire and afterwards, and there's other transformations, but then tying that back into something in the the Paleolithic or the Neolithic or something, there, the evidence isn't really there. But I'll say two things. So first of all, I will say blame Ronald Hutton. Ronald Hutton is an amazing scholar. I love his work and his book, Triumph of the Moon, on the origin of neo-pagan beliefs is fantastic and I highly recommend it and he is super sympathetic to that perspective at the same time he's like look I have to follow the history where it leads on the other hand there are a number of tantalizing tantalizing mm-hmm. archaeological and historical elements that do show that while there's no great religious cult that maybe survives necessarily, there are strands that are actually perhaps much older than we might think. There's a there's a site called Saviak Water in Cornwall in, in western in the western UK near Land's End that shows at least several centuries of significant, interesting kind of archaeological folk or archaeological evidence of folk ritual activities that are basically invisible, but they look very, very interesting. I, I'm not going to get into all of it, but finding these like ritual pits that that you know clearly were being done on sort of the down low uh, that continue to the present. I mean, she basically this archaeologist uh, Jackie Wood. She she bought. I will tell the story. She bought this <laughs> land. She was going to do archaeological work on. It. They were working on a Mesolithic site, which is sort of the pre-farming but after the ice age and they kept finding these intrusive pits with like swans pelts and then swans but like not just a swan and put in but like they had been modified and dog bits and cat bits and other strange things and she's like these look ritual and and they're in a marsh and and what's going on here and they started dating these things and finding that several of them were three four hundred years old and then some of them were three hundred years old and then some of them were 200 years old. And then some of them had plastic bags in them. <laughs> and, and modern bailing wire. It's like, what the hell is going on here? And she started asking around and found, like, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, that land. Oh, there were a couple of sisters. Oh, they were, you know, whatever. And people joked that they were witches. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, well, that's, well, that's interesting. The realtor didn't mention that. But, uh, but yeah, no, there, there are some <laughs> tantalizing aspects there, but I think a lot of it gets back to that division of time, that because these things go back several hundred years, they start to feel like they have a much deeper antiquity to them, when in reality, that's not necessarily the case. Right, yeah, yeah. The, um, I was going to say, 
the um, uh, I was reading a har reading. Sorry, I was listening to a Harlan Elson uh, uh-huh. sort of book. You know, uh, it was called De- Deathbird, and it, and even it borrowed that kind of idea of the uh, you know that 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 this ancient religion that you know that Christianity kind of. It, it, I, and you, you sort of delved into a bit in, in, on a uh, monster talk about this about um, you know how uh, you you know how so much sort of you know fiction and things like that uh, sort of sort of you know borrow this idea that that um, um, you know H.P. Love craft kind of you know sort of oh yeah he was he was he was hugely influenced by it. he he it, i i honestly think when he read murray's book it basically is one of the major impetuses for him to create what becomes the cthulhu mythos which is fascinating if you're a fan of that and all that and what or you're you know god forbid you try to play a video game or read a comic or do anything and don't find something cthulhu in it uh these days partly because it's in public domain uh, so you don't have to pay rights. But on top of all of that, that becomes a major inspiration for conspiracy culture. Uh, so much of conspiracy culture has has sometimes tinges of that and sometimes way more. I mean, I'll just put this out there. Um, I don't know what you're going to get into with political and conspiracy stuff, but if you're familiar with the QAnon conspiracy stuff, that's raging in in the United States right now with this alleged like you know oh, super right, yes, right yeah, yeah it's kind of like it's like PizzaGate on on steroids oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah and I, I deal you, with some of those PizzaGate people on Quora and it, yeah it's like oh God the, the things that literally make you stupider that's one <laughs> oh yeah well I, and but it's really common and this stuff is way more I, I always say this this stuff is way more common. Than than you than people imagine, and that's it's easier to say that now after 2016. But I remember the first time I was on before the election, I was on I was on archaeological fantasies, and my co-hosts would refer to all this stuff as the fringe, and I'm like, you know, yeah. I'm not sure that's accurate. I suspect there's way more of this out there than you think, and well, we've seen that it's happened, uh, but. Uh, the QAnon people, you go into that, and some of them are all like, "Oh, it's all going to be the, the the draining of the deep state and the swamp and all of that." I'm not trying to sound like a particular Texas radio person, but um, but then you get much farther, and they start to talk about Antarctica. There's like this <laughs> huge fixation on the idea that there's some secret shenanigans hmm. involving God knows what aliens, Nephilim, Nazis, whatever, and under Antarctica. It's like you know what? If you're talking about a conspiracy to hide. Weird mystical shit in Antarctica. You're basically ripping off Lovecraft's at the Mountains of Madness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just be blunt about that. And the thing is, is where that entered conspiracy culture was in the late 1940s and the early 1950s with people like Maurice Doriol and Albert Bender, who give us things like the Reptilians and the Men in Black, and both of those are straight up lifted from H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard the creator of Conan and their pulp fiction. This is not a circumstantial case. This is a straight up. We can show this case. Right, yeah. It, it, it sort of seems to me that, that, um, you know, people get tripped up as they, and it you know, probably comes a lot from like, you know, Watergate and stuff like that. Is that people, they operate by this really simple heuristic that, you know, the, the official story is always wrong, you know, and, and it just, you know, and, 
it, it, it inevitably leads them to these, you know, pizza games, QAnon, and, and you know, flat Earth and stuff like that. You know, if if the textbook says the Earth is round, the official story is always wrong. Therefore, the Earth yeah. must be flat. You know, it's 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 a bizarre kind of it, 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 it's it's a, it's a march down to the you know to the to the bare wood you know of uh, of uh, of you know what you believe kind of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's it's. I think it's a protest. I mean, so one of the, one of the most useful articles I have ever run across on this, and I should probably re- memorize the names of the authors so I can just say this. But there was, I want to say, in 2012, so not long after the events, there was a psychological study um, that got people to talk about uh, Osama bin Laden, mm-hmm. and it it quizzed these people what they thought about one of three potential scenarios. One, that Osama bin Laden was still alive, mm-hmm. that, that the idea that he had been killed was a lie. Two, that Osama bin Laden had been killed in either late 2001 or in 2002 when the U.S. Uh, military, or the coalition, excuse me, the coalition military forces, it was more than just U.S., mm-hmm. coalition military forces uh, had gone into Afghanistan in the caves of Tora Bora and they had killed him, but they were keeping that under wraps so they could keep the war on terror going. Or that three, he was killed in 2011 by SEAL Team 6, as the mainstream narrative would have. Mm-hmm. And what the study found was that if you believed that Osama bin Laden was still alive, or that you believed that Osama bin Laden had been dead since 2002, but it was being hidden, the second most likely thing you were to believe was the other one that I just said. Yeah, yeah. Either he was dead or alive, but the thing you were most convinced of in this study was, if you believed one of those, was that the mainstream that he had been killed in 2011 was a lie. Right, yeah. And that's the thing. At that point, you realize they don't care if he's dead or alive. The entire point is to say that the mainstream is a lie. And you begin to realize at that point that this becomes a larger statement on your relationship to the larger society, which to some degree basically becomes a giant go fuck yourself. <laughs> I mean, that, that and, yeah. and that's what it is. And we see this today. Like, there are people that support various political movements and political figures because they may believe what that person says or that movement says, but there are a lot of people that support them because either A, they anger their political enemies, or B, they are so disenchanted with how things are that they're pretty much at the mood, even if you know they actually do have three squares and a warm bed, mm-hmm. of burn it all down. Yeah. It's and like, I think a lot of conspiracy culture gets into that place. Right. It's, it's like why do you know why do people in Pakistan occasionally riot and burn down the KFC when the KFC is really owned by you know a Pakistani? You know, and it's yeah. like it's they can't protest the government, but you know it, it's it, they have to protest something, right? You know? Yeah, and and th- and that's the thing. And also in conspiracy culture, you you hear this idea occasionally. I mean, I don't agree with this at all. I've heard that, I mean, let me rephrase that. Conspiracy culture, this is probably true. Paranormal culture is definitely true. I have literally heard people who consider themselves paranormal investigators or paranormal authors say, well, because all of this stuff is paranormal, nobody really knows if, any, if it's true, so no one can be an expert on it. Yeah. It's like, you know what? 
if I'm a zoologist and we're talking about, oh, I don't know, the friggin' Loch Ness Monster, I'm pretty sure I can be an expert about what the hell is in that lake. Yeah. Because I kind of studied ecological biology and evolutionary biology. But there's a certain idea that once you label it as controversial or conspiracy theory or political or something, that anything goes. And I think that's the appeal for many people of these fields of interest. And the way this plays out in a really disturbing way, especially with archaeological materials, is where you can do things – that would be utterly abhorrent mm-hmm. and or illegal, but if it's involving UFOs or other weird shitology, you get a free pass. So, for example, in Peru recently, there was a thing promoted by an online streaming network and other people that, oh, aliens had been found or alien hybrids had been found. And it was a series of bodies, of mummies, mm-hmm. that were – some of them were basically created. Some were not, and I'll get to that in a second. The ones that were not created, one was a fetus, and that's a different situation. But the ones I'm thinking in particular, as soon as I saw them, I'm like, oh, those are ancient mummy bundles. Like I can just immediately see it. And, and the experts who are much more expert than I am on Peruvian prehistory were able to determine that once they, once they looked at them. But they had been painted or plastered with some gray crap on top of them. And they had three fingers and three toes. And they were really long. And their eyes looked weird. What became very clear was these were real human remains, which are protected by Peruvian antiquities laws, that had had the fingers chopped off on two of the fingers. And the finger bones had then been wired to the remaining fingers and the remaining toes to make them look longer. And the whole thing had been covered in gray. A, to probably hide that they had just mutilated a human corpse, and B, to make them look like ideas of aliens. Now, there's more backstory to this that I'm not going to get into, but nobody had paid a lot of attention until this really got out there. I'm like, wait, you're mutilating human remains that are protected by antiquities laws, but because you're invoking UFOs, nobody wanted to touch it. Right, yeah, yeah. And there are other examples of this. There's no ethics in the UFO community, people going, you know, I don't think you know because well this will prove you know the ufo you know aliens are visiting us and therefore you know well not only that not only might there not be any ethics in a particular subculture once you put on this like you know you you would ask like oh do people email me and say i am totally not insane and i have a certificate to prove it and now (laughs) let me tell you my idea imagine that you're like a, a regulator or a police or whatever and somebody's like oh there's this crime and it involves UFOs and ancient hieroglyphs and you're like, I'm out. Yeah. I'm I'm no, no, I you know what? I got like muggers. Yeah. Or I got like polluters yeah. to to find and fine, you know, and in prison. I mean, like you're just like, I don't have time for this. Yeah. Like, well, no, I don't have time for Bigfoot. No, 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 no. It's like the uh well I think we can 
Canada, we call them freemen on the land. And I think America, they call them, um, uh, I forget what you call them in America, but these people who operate by this bizarre, you know, pseudo legal, magical. Uh, s- uh, sovereign citizens. Great, sovereign citizens, right. And, you know, they get pulled over by the cops and they'll they'll pull out all of these, you know, notes and letters and yeah. rate cards. Well, and, and, yeah. and sometimes they pull out, I mean, there's been several where it's ended in, in deadly yeah. gunfight. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. they'll pull out their weapons, yeah. yeah. But mostly, a lot of times it'd be like, it'll be three in the morning. And the cops just look at this shit, and he's just like, "Ah, just go." And, and yeah, but, but then they they count that as a victory. Like, see, see, you I know? beat the man. It, it, exactly. Not sort of realizing, right? It's just like the. It's three in the morning. I've got time for this. Yeah. Just, no, I mean, and, and 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 that's a reality. And and I, and I think a lot of that happens with sort of these weird pseudoscientific things, where. You know, nobody challenging. Nobody's proved I'm wrong yet. It's like, yeah, you know why nobody's proved this wrong? Because nobody's looked. You know, this this is one of these things that occasionally when you get this, and this only works so far, where people are like, why hasn't science looked at this? And I'm like, here's the thing. You know what happens if science looks at this? You ain't going to be happy. Like, that's the last thing you want is for people to actually look at this because it's not going to go well. Like if you really actually like get people worked up enough to start looking, right now you're kind of going under the radar. Yeah. And you know, like like Andy White, for example, uh, you mentioned Roman swords earlier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I'm not going to get into all the details on this and names and so forth, but Andy White's an archaeologist, professional archaeologist professor, and he got really interested in this guy who was involved with um, a TV show on the History Channel, Oak Island. It was like they found a Roman sword. He yeah. started like, wait, that looks weird. And he ended up creating this whole project where he created like a typology of all these swords that turned out to be basically like tourist junk. Yeah. None, of them, none of them were ancient. They weren't even based on an ancient thing. They were just based on like, what should a Roman sword look like? And he like found dozens of them and 3D scanned them and like literally could basically write an article on the history of this late 20th century theatrical slash tourist slash gaudy gigaw Roman sword industry because a guy suggested that this was an actual ancient Roman sword found in the New World. And he put all this effort on it. And it was not received well. (laughs) Not by them. No, not at all. Yeah. And and that's the reality. Now, I'll say this. Um, As much as I say people don't pay attention, one of the things I find absolutely fascinating is that on a number of these sort of weird shitology topics, and archaeology is one of them, but it's actually, there are some others that have gone faster. Like, if 20 years ago, when I was, you know, two years old, not really true, <laughs> um, when I was uh, in, in <clears throat> grad school, right. uh, if you were like, oh, I want to do a course or I want to do a thing on cryptozoology or conspiracy theory or ufos or pseudo-archaeology okay i'm gonna go to the library and get all the books and the articles on it you'd be very very sorely disappointed there'd be some things there'd be some good things but you go now there is this i i sometimes refer to it almost as an invisible college of 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 scholars and sometimes not professional scholars but like serious uh, investigators who are not professors and whatnot who have started to look at this. Like, right. I'm teaching a course this fall. The course is really about epistemology. How do we know what we know? You could argue it's critical thinking, but what's the course's title? 
investigating the paranormal. And what are we studying? Bigfoot. Right, yeah. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at what is this idea. And their final assignment is going to be what is Bigfoot? You're going to solve this mystery. And I'm going to tell them again. It's like, look, I'm not going to lie. I kind of lean towards the cultural answer, but we're going to look at the biological. We're going to look at the ecological. We're look at this. Um, the reason I chose that is in the last 10 to 15 years, there's like half a dozen serious books by serious scholars from serious presses on this topic. And, and that's new. And there's so much more on a lot of these because I think people have begun to realize that conspiracy culture, alternative ideas, all of this are a big part of our society. And this is not necessarily new. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that Victorian is a drinking word on archaeological <laughs> fantasies because if you go back to the Victorian era, you go into sort of like intellectual elite culture. I mean, these are people who are hanging out with the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Right, right. And, and, and they're doing all this stuff, and this was actually not that unusual. And it's never been that unusual. We just sort of lied to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think talking about conspiracies, which I know is your main thing, you know, I mean, I know there's Richard Hofstadter with his, you know, his, his work in the 1960s, and there's some other people who have written about conspiracy. But I think for a long time in the 20th century, we sort of desperately hoped that we cool. were better than that. Cooler heads would prevail. And so, yeah. yeah, and they don't. No. You know, it's kind of like it's the way I think about the American television show The West Wing, which is sort of a, a certain kind of political persuasions kind of fantasy of how politics should be. It's like, oh, these people don't necessarily agree on their politics, but they're all trying to strive and do their best, and they're all funny, and they're all smart, <laughs> and they're all going to do their best, and it's like, I get why you like this but that is not how the world works right, yeah. and it's actually not at all how the world works and in reality you have people that do all these things and one of the things i think is particularly interesting about that and one of the things that i think gets into this this sort of i got one over the man because we got it through and it's all true is the fact that government pulls from its populace mm -hmm. government's reflect people in government reflect the people outside of government and the reason i say this is if you look at the history of these sort of these weird shitology topics you can inevitably find government funded projects and programs and efforts to study psychic powers mm -hmm. and ufos alternative and medicine exactly and it's not because like oh the government knows all these things they know the real truth it's because the government is made of the same people who are outside and who also believe these things. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, in the U.S. government, the big one recently was Harry Reid. Harry Reid, who used to be the, 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 the majority leader of the, of the United States Senate, Democratic senator from Nevada, um, who was a major player in getting uh, sort of slush funds. about I think it was like $22 million to fund a project to study, I think they called it advanced aerial threats or something, right, right. but it, it's UFOs. And I don't want to get into this because this would be a whole hour, but it basically tied into uh, a billionaire who's fascinated by this stuff, Robert Bigelow, and all these other figures, and there's like a ex-crappy pop-punk band guy who, who does this <laughs> stuff now. 
and, and but it gets really complicated. And it's like, is it because Harry Reid knows the ancient secrets of the Nephilim UFO knots? No, it's because Harry Reid is a dude in a culture where a lot of people believe in this, and he's one of them. Yeah. And it's not that unusual. He's found and, a way of transferring yeah, wealth to his friends. Right. Well, and, and it's a thing that he believes in, though. I, I don't even think it's necessarily corrupt in the sense of like, oh, we're going to use this UFO money to like. Right, right, it's like, right. no, I think he really probably is very interested. I mean, Bill Clinton really was legitimately interested in UFOs and Roswell. His chief of staff, John Podesta. Yeah. Then became the campaign manager for Hillary Clinton, and that's where we get the emails that give us Pizzagate. Yeah. And, and, and like, he really was interested in UFOs. He really is. Hillary Clinton clearly kind of is, at least at some level. And so is Bill Clinton. That's real. Yeah. And, and so was Ronald Reagan. Like, these are, these are real things. And, you know, there's a former Canadian, um, minister, I think defense minister or something. Robert Hellier. I think Hellier. Yeah. Hellier. Yeah. Yeah. Who is a huge figure. He hasn't been a, in the Canadian government for a long time okay. because he was in the Canadian government. All of a sudden he's got all this credibility that makes him a huge figure in the UFO, exopolitics and disclosure movement. And is it surprising that somebody in a government is into something that other people in that society are? No, not really. He he will be a chapter in my book. Oh, I, I, I absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah uh, really fascinating character. Uh, speaking of speaking of Canadians, I'll, I'll give you this one. My favorite ethnograph or my my my, my is my favorite ethnographic moment ever. Okay, in two thousand and two, I traveled to Roswell, New Mexico. Now I just didn't go to Roswell. I went to Roswell around the Fourth of July weekend during their annual UFO festival. Right, okay. And I went there and uh, I went to, of course, the UFO Museum and Research Center, which is the hub of all of this. And it also has a really big gift shop, as you <laughs> can imagine. And one of the groups that was scheduled to speak at the UFO Museum and Research Center Representatives of the Raelians. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So you 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 know who yeah, they are? Yeah, he's a Canadian, Canadian. Well, yeah, for, for, like French, you know, France, Canadian, French, Canadian. Yeah. So like the the head of it, uh, the original Claude Rion, I believe he's French. Right, yeah. But then the the sort of the religious group kind of took root in in Quebec, and it's got like a lot of followers yeah. in South Korea, and they were involved in like cloning allegations. So in 2002, they sent representatives to this UFO um, festival in Roswell, and they were supposed to speak in the UFO Museum and Research Center. But at the last minute, that got canceled because apparently they were too weird for the <laughs> UFO Museum and Research Center. I'm pretty sure that should be a merit badge because that's amazing. I, I think it's but, because they wanted to do it naked. I think that might be the problem. Well, they weren't naked in front of me. Okay. <laughs> and I'm saying that – I'm not saying I was disappointed or not. I'm just saying that is a factual thing because, yeah, they do get into a lot of like free love and all of that. But they did present in Roswell that weekend – they presented across the street. Now, this place does exist, but no longer across the street from the UFO Museum and Research Center. They presented in the headquarters of a local ministry, UFO Resistance, <laughs> founded by a guy who I believe was from Tennessee. And in the 1990s, he started to experience what some people would have called UFO abduction. Now, I might 
cough and go sleep paralysis, but I'm not going to get into that. But he eventually interpreted it through the lens of um, demonological nocturnal attacks, and he decided that he was going to create a ministry against this because there's this big idea, and this gets into things like QAnon and whatnot, Mm -hmm. uh, that the UFO phenomenon is actually demons in disguise. And so if you're going to conduct spiritual warfare Mm. against this, what better place in the 1990s in X-Files time to go than Roswell? So he opened up a storefront church across the street from the UFO Museum and Research Center in Roswell, and they let in to do their thing the Raelians. Now, the Raelians, when I was missionized at by them, said, we don't worship aliens, we are atheists. But they are clearly a religious movement that's fascinated by aliens and cloning and all of this. They were allowed to talk in there because they're like, well, we don't fear you. You can come in and do this. And I sat in there being missionized at by a Raelian ambassador from the stars inside a church dedicated to conducting spiritual warfare against demons under disguise of aliens. Now, that's amazing enough, but somebody took a picture of this when he was uh, sort of fascinated by a film, a documentary that had been filmed there years earlier, and it went online, and I found this picture, and I'm in it wearing an Area 51 shirt, and I'm like, sir, I need your picture because I need to show it to every class I am ever going to teach again (laughs) when I describe who I am. All right. Yeah. Well, you've been very generous with your time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, Jeb, yeah, yeah. Um. Um. Let's see. So, uh, your book we should probably spooky archaeology, yes. myth, the science of the past. Just look for where it's available. I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Uh, and there'll probably be a paperback coming out in the future. Uh, and uh, archaeological fantasies, which is at archiefantasies.com. You can find it at iTunes. Uh, we are putting out some new episodes, great, great. and you can find me occasionally. I've shown up on Sharon Hill's credibility, 15 Credibility Street. I seem to show up a fair amount on Monster Talk from time to time, and you know I might be doing some additional efforts of my own in the future, though I've been really lazy, so yeah. that hasn't yeah, really gone look forward to it. I, sort of my, my final question, I mean, Monster Talk has, you know, what's your favorite monster? Oh, yes, yeah. yes. My, my final question is, um, um, I always have um, the podcast that doesn't want anything, I don't want money, I don't beg for people sure, to sure. go, you know, like me on uh, iTunes or anything like that, but um, um, you know, I, I always do say, you know, if, uh, if you do encounter one of my guests, you know, at a convention or something like that and say oh jeb i heard you on uh you know conspiracy skeptic you are awesome you know can i buy you something what what kind of drink would uh, could people buy you if they encounter oh my <laughs> oh that's a, that's a dangerous question uh that seems to be fluctuating but uh the one that's probably my signature okay. uh is i'm a sucker for ciders i'm a oh, yeah. suck which you which you do more of up there i just was in the uk so it was very easy to get them it's right. you it, it's it's easier now i remember back in the 2000s i was like the only person ever who drank cider but uh but it's a lot easier now it's been sort of a renaissance of that uh i'm drinking a and t right now but um but no uh a, a nice good and if possible local uh, cider would be very much up my alley. All right. 
Very good. Okay. All right. And, and again, thank you. Thank you for. Uh, Thank you so much. This has been awesome. Yeah, well, th- thank you, Jeb, and, and I, I, I say love uh, love Archie Fantasies and uh, you and Ken and Sarah, and it's just it, 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 find it on iTunes and it will, yes, it, will it will change your life. It will it's, it will realign your thinking and uh, put a lot of things into perspective. I'll just put it this way: if you need to spend an hour thinking about spectral werewolves, <laughs> you can find that episode of the show. If you need to find an hour where I talk about Bigfoot and then go on a rant about the Mandela effect, you can find that episode of the show. They are out there. Perfect. All right. Well, have a, have a good night, Jeb. You too. Right. Bye-bye. Should read a book.